Hello, this is Reverend Judith Laxer. Thank you for listening to the podcast of our service entitled The Nature of Opposition. Wherever you are tuning in from all over the globe, I am so glad you're here. My wish is that the food for thought offered brings great nourishment for your soul. Our ministry for the goddess is supported solely by those who, like you, partake of its teachings. We are currently running our annual pledge drive. If you feel served by listening, please go to www.gaiastemple.org, click on the Support Us button to make your pledge, then push the Donate button and give generously. We'd be most grateful. Thank you and blessed be. Well, my friends, here we are on the wheel of the year approaching the vernal equinox, the spring equinox, also called Ostara. And that's going to happen on uh, Sunday morning, March 20th. Uh, And that is the equal point or the time of balance between light and dark on the wheel of the year. It's one of two. This is the time that we enter into the light half of the year, which makes most of us very, very happy. The days will be longer and warmer. It's great to get outside again. And then across the wheel, we enter into the dark half of the wheel at Mabin, which is the other equinox, the autumnal equinox. And that's when we go into the dark half of the wheel. But now we are going into the light half of the wheel. And this is the time of growth and flowering and it's just so beautiful to start to see color return to the landscape, you know. I'm sure we're all happy to see spring. <laughs> and it's the time when we sow our seeds. And of course, here in this congregation, what we want to do is we want to sow the seeds of love. And uh, we are now going to sing Oriel Lighten's beautiful chant, Sow Love. So Maury, go ahead and put those lyrics up. Many of you know this now um, because we've sung it both in January and February. We're going to sing it at every service this year. And so what I'm going to do is to sing it and just join in when you catch on. We're going to sing it twice through. And uh, here we go. We are sowing, we are growing, we bestow love. We are sowing, we are growing, we bestow love. We are sowing, we are growing, we bestow love. We are part of the solution, so we love, so I love. And we stir the revolution, so we love, so I love. We are sowing, we are growing, we bestow love. We are sowing, we are growing, we bestow love. We are sowing, we are growing, we bestow love. We see mothers, we see brothers, so we love, so I love. And I tend myself and others, so we love, so I love. They are takers and heartbreakers, still we love, so I love. Dare to wonder what lies under, so we love, so I love. We are sowing, we are growing, we bestow love. 
We are sowing, we are growing, we bestow love. We are sowing, we are growing, we bestow love. We are part of the solution, so we love, so I love. And we stir the revolution, so we love, so I love. We are sowing, we are growing, we bestow love. We are sowing, we are growing, we bestow love. We are sowing, we are growing, we bestow love. We see mothers, we see brothers, so we love, so I love. And I tend myself and others, so we love, so I love. They are takers and heartbreakers, still we love, so I love. Dare to wonder what lies under, so we love, so I love. We are sowing, we are growing, we bestow love. We are sowing, we are growing, we bestow love. We are sowing, we are growing, we bestow love. Beautiful. I will be eternally grateful to Oriel Leighton for writing that gorgeous chant for us. We are sowing the seeds of love. And so we are continuing on our journey of revolutionary love, which is the work created by Valerie Kaur, K-A-U-R, Valerie Kaur. And if you haven't watched her TED Talk, go and watch her TED Talk because she talks very quite succinctly about what this way of being is, the way of revolutionary love. And I was so inspired by it. Uh, when I came upon it late last year, that I took a course and I studied it and I just keep watching those videos over and over and over again. And it's really quite a magnificent method to shift how we love to do what she calls reordering the world. And when we look at our world, we know it needs some reordering. So we're going to continue on now. And I'm going to ask Mari to put up the slide with the compass this is the compass of revolutionary love and on the upper left side like by you know between nine and twelve o'clock on the clock we started with others and to see no stranger and at the center there in january we explored the concept of wonder in february we looked at grieve and now here we are in march at fight which is something so this is the compass that we are going to be following this year. So in April will be rage and May will be listen and reimagining in, in June and onward we go. But today we are sticking with fight. Okay, Mari, thank you for that compass so we can kind of be oriented to the work and the circle that we are following. So fight. <laughs> Now, Valerie, Valerie defines fight in revolutionary love as nonviolent action, nonviolent action that is fierce, strategic, demanding, and disciplined. 
Those are strong words, and but they're not violent words, and they don't incite violence. To fight is to tap into our own sense of agency to protect ourselves and those that we love or to protect ourselves and others, even if we don't know and love them because they are in harm's way. The fight of revolutionary love asks us to become sage warriors. And she defines a sage warrior as, first I'll talk about the word warrior. A warrior is very, very different than warmonger. A warrior is someone who chooses to show up and be present. They are present for what's going on and they show up where they are needed. They're not aggressive or causing conflict. They show up to conflict to see how they can de-escalate it and also how to prevent harm from happening. So that is the concept of the spiritual warrior. And she wants us to be sage warriors, which means we are looking through our spiritual eyes and applying the wisdom that we know. And in doing that, we are not in reaction. We are in thoughtful and strategic response. So ultimately what this means is that we need to slow down a little bit so that we have a, a few seconds to consider how we want to be responding rather than just reacting in the moment to whatever is going on around us. And that's just good advice no matter what, <laughs> no matter what it is that we are encountering in our lives. Sage warriors, that's what we are trying to become. We are not fighting because we have too much energy and we don't know what to do with it. We are not fighting uh, to prove our worth or to flaunt our power. We are not fighting out of revenge or bullying or to vanquish our perceived enemies. That is not the impetus for any of this kind of fighting. The fight of revolutionary love is to protect ourselves and others in harm's way, not to wage war, but to act against war. And that's all out war and also microaggressions, like wherever we feel that harm is being perpetrated, that's where we show up to try to stop that harm from happening. So the fight that I am talking about and that she talks about is nonviolent. And that is the only kind of fight I will ever talk about. I am not inciting violence at all. I would just want to make that very, very clear. So what we need in this way of fighting is strategy and policy change. We need to create solidarity in our actions so that we have the power of numbers behind us. And also, of course, we need to change our own behavior. Easier said than done, but these are the ways that we engage in nonviolent action that is the fight of revolutionary love. Now listen, I consider myself a pacifist. A pacifist. I don't like to fight. I don't like the word fight. I don't like the action of fighting. I find the word fight to be a very difficult word. You know me, I'm a wordy nerd. So fight just, I do not like it. And it's tough to teach the word fight in the temple of the goddess, which, you know, is all about our, our, you know, our values, which is love and peace and respect and integrity. So it took a while for me to find the title for this service because I so did not like the word fight that I just couldn't put it in the title. And there are several words in Valerie's teaching actually that I have trouble with because they're very militaristic. They're a little too militaristic for me. 
um, you know, like sword and shield and weapon and fight. I mean, these are not the words that I often use, and they're certainly words that I do not like. But I get a good metaphor. I understand them on a metaphoric way. And listening to her again and again caused me to expand my mind, actually, to include these words in my own personal lexicon and to hold these words a little bit differently. And hopefully I can do the same for you in how I relay the concepts behind them. So I ended up calling the service the nature of opposition, <laughs> even though we go into opponents in the second third of, the, um, of that compass. But I called it the nature of opposition because at the deepest level of pagan spirituality is the teaching that opposites hold the balance in wholeness, right? Like even just looking at the equinoxes here, we're entering into the light half and six and a half moons from now, we'll be entering into the dark half. And those are opposites on the wheel, but together it is inclusive and it's part of that whole. So that is what happens in nature. But I wanna talk about human nature a little bit now because human nature is both nature, but it's also nurture. So at the core of our human nature, of course, is to stay alive. And we need air and food and water and shelter and kinship. And those are our primary things that we need. And it has been instilled in us to remain alive and to live beautiful lives as best that we can with as many comforts and joys and delights as we can muster and create. But who we become in life is also part of nurture or how we've been nurtured or how we haven't been nurtured. And what we do and how we live is often in direct response to our environment. And um, you know, knowing full well that our responses to life and our responses to the world and the environment around us is most likely um, predicated on past experiences. And I say most likely because if we don't bring to mind and bring to consciousness how we have done something in the past and choose to do it differently, it just becomes, you know, that habit, that slippery slope, uh, a well-worn groove, all those metaphors of just repeated behavior again and again and again. And that's what happens when we are nurtured or not nurtured a certain way. We get into a habitual reaction. And we can see that in the big picture when we look down the annals of time. War after war after war after war. And here we are again with war. In between those wars, there are brief periods of peace. Yay! But are they truly peace? I'm starting to wonder about that now. It feels almost like they're like brief respites time for healing, to get a break, to sort of restore, but they never seem to last long enough so that true healing can occur completely. Because I think if true healing did occur completely, we wouldn't go back and do more war. And if there's something that is unhealed, it's just gonna fester and it's going to erupt. So if we respond out of our past trauma, which is what I think keeps going on, and our need to feel powerful in the face of it, we just keep repeating the ways that are not peaceful. Perhaps wars and pandemics are ways that Mother Nature lets us know that she has 
so many children, she doesn't know what to do. That was the thought that I had. And I wrote it down when I was writing the service. And then I thought, wait a minute, what's that from? It's like, oh yeah, there's that Mother Goose nursery rhyme. So I looked it up and it goes like this. There was an old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children, she didn't know what to do. She gave them some broth without any bread and whipped them all soundly and put them to bed. Uh, I just remember those first two lines. It was an old woman who, who lived in a shoe, had so many children she didn't know what to do. I don't think I ever heard the second two lines of that. And I read it and I thought, ouch, that's not a very nice little nursery rhyme to read to children. Of course, this nursery rhyme is quite punitive. And I'm sure it was written during that time when, you know, punishing and frightening children was a teaching method. Hopefully we are not teaching our children through that method now. But at the time it was written, it certainly was. But, uh, so what it looks like then is that the crone cracks the whip on the defenseless, she withholds food, and she puts them to bed. And no one likes to be injured and then go to bed without supper. Right? But when we look through our spiritual eyes at this rhyme, we might see that it looks like this, that the aging earth, the old woman, is at her wit's end, nearing the end of what she has to provide for her children. And so they get some broth, but there's not enough bread to go around, right? More and more of us on the planet, there are going to be shortages. Even though we know there are no shortages, there's only waste, but still, for the sake of the run. We can think of the ravages of war and climate change and disease as the whipping we are surely getting right now. And she is certainly putting some of us to bed, right? Which we can think of as the lives that are being lost. Now, I do not mean to say at all that we should be blaming mother nature for the dangerous wars that humans wage because nature lives in harmony with herself. There's no senseless waste in nature. There are cycles. We all know that life cycles are part of the deal here on planet earth in this third dimension. That's just how it goes. But those life cycles needn't be perpetrated by violence. Humans, however, we create senseless waste, or we have come to create senseless waste, and we are often violence-driven. And of course, like I said, that is often because we haven't healed from past, past trauma, and that trauma that just keeps coming down the pike, and until we say the buck stops here, we're gonna do it differently, which is hopefully what we're doing here in Gaia's Temple, learning revolutionary love. Uh, it just continues on and on and on. And we see it, right? We see it in those whose sense of self is so skewed that they would commit atrocities on others just to feel powerful, just to feel that alpha thrill, who need to go on the offense to show the world and thereby themselves how powerful they are, right? And those humans, they need to be decommissioned from their powers, or their position of powers and uh, decision-making. To me, they are madmen. They're just madmen. Now, decommissioned, by the way, means made inoperable. And it's usually referred to in terms of weapons, right? Weapons are made, weapons are decommissioned. They are made inoperable so they can't do harm. But I think those madmen are those dangerous weapons, and I think that they need to be decommissioned. I don't think it's wise to keep anyone in a position of power who does not have deep compassion and empathy for others, and especially when they are giddy with their own power. I don't think those people should be at the helm 
of anything. So, I think considering how long we have been warring and wreaking havoc on our great mother, her responses actually make sense. They don't feel punitive to me, like mother nature is angry and so she's causing hardships for us. This feels to me like more like the expression of dire symptoms of ill health. That's what's going on. Now we can think of ourselves, those of us who want to counter the ills and the trouble that we see around us in the world as healers. And we need to be working hard as healers. And sometimes that feels like fighting. Sometimes that hard work means like we are fighting. We are fighting to heal. So let's get to it. Fight. What does fight mean actually in revolutionary love? Now we think of ourselves as peaceful beings. How can fighting be how we love? Love is supposed to be gentle and kind and delightful and delicious and sweet, right? That's what we strive to be. So how and why can we include fighting in how we participate in a revolution of love? At first glance, this makes no sense. But like I said in the description of this sentence, and this is what Valerie teaches, it's not a question of if we will find ourselves in a fight. It's a question of when. We're going to fight. There's going to be fights. It's, um, and more importantly, the question is, how do we want to fight? How can we be strategic and remain steadfast in our stance against harm? So it's not if we're in a fight, but when. Humans are going to fight, same as it ever was. Even those we love become opponents sometimes. We're going to disagree, and sometimes those disagreements are going to be on big and important things, and we're going to fight. We're going to fight with our family, our family of origin, and also the family that we create. We're going to fight our people at work. We're going to fight our community and we're going to fight with ourselves. And so the first thing we must remember to do is to stay human and remember humanity, remember our humanity. That's what sage warriors do. That's how they fight against the ills and the harms. We don't make monsters of our opponents. They are also beings who are doing what they think is right. Sometimes we wonder, how they can possibly think what they're doing is right. But they do. That's why they're doing it. So to create monsters out of people who are our opponents dehumanizes them and we become like the oppressor. So it's very important to stay human and to recognize the humanity. The sage warrior also knows that a fight is not necessarily something that happens right here, right now, that we win and that it's over. And we can pretty much be assured that the fight for social justice, for equality, for everyone, which is what equality means, <laughs> that everyone is equal and equitable, that's probably going to go on long beyond our life. Because when we look down into history, down in the past of history, we can see that's been going on for many, 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 many years. So... Everything that we do is helping to turn that tide. But if we think we're going to take one action and it's a one and done and everything's going to be fine, that's not, that's not the sage warrior. The sage warrior knows this is something that's an ongoing action to change the course 
for those who are coming after us and to have our own little triumphs along the way. But to think that it's, you know, one fight right here, right now, and that's the end of it, not so much. The sage warrior knows that this way of living is the way to live in our fullest power, where we are our most fierce, where we have our most agency, where we make the choices for what we want to see in the world. And Valerie says that uh, no one can crush our spirits this way because we have decided to look into the world with a warrior's heart and the sage's eyes. And she believes that laboring for justice with love and joy gives meaning to life. And I, I would agree with that. So how can we be strategic and remain steadfast in our stance against harm? We must determine three things, she teaches us, our sword, our shield, and our home community. So there's those words, sword and shield. Heesh, I had to like talk myself down. <laughs> I had to talk myself down from the use of those words, but here we have it. This is what she says our swords are. They are the tools, or we might call them the weapons, that we use against injustice on behalf of ourselves and others. And those are our voices, our art, our money, and our presence. Those are the ways that we fight. Those are the tools that we use to fight with our voices, our art, our money. We put our money where our mouth is. And our presence, we show up as warriors. Our shield, what is our shield? And we have to determine what we can use to protect ourselves and others when and if the fight gets dangerous. And those, she says, are our camera phones, our legal counsel, groups of allies who are already in that fight, and public witness right? That's part of what the cameras are. You take a picture of it so the world can see what's going on, right? And also, she says, uh, accomplices. And that was another word. I'm like, accomplices? You only hear, I have only heard the word accomplice as someone who is an accomplice to a crime. Like, automatically, we think, oh, an accomplice? They're bad. They're guilty. This just the turn of phrase, accomplice to a crime, is what came into my mind when I saw the word accomplice. But we must remember that the word accomplice means it's someone who has accomplished something. And so we have decided it's guilty and it means it's part of a crime because we're used to hearing that through our, you know, law and order television shows. <laughs> but an accomplice is someone who is in action to accomplish a goal. So our shield are our accomplices, right? and to be an accomplice. And that's how we stay safe. And then the home community, which is we ask ourselves, you know, who are the people who are with us in this fight? Who are the people who have our backs? Whose back do we have? Who can we count on? Who can we ask to recommit to this cause? And also who can we ask like, what's your sword and shield? So that we can sort of get ideas and find our solidarity and learn some new things and also practice with each other. This is uh, how we support each other when the going gets hard. And look around in our world, the going is getting hard. We need to really form our alliances in community of like-minded people who are taking actions against harm. 
That's the thing right there. So that is our sword and our shield and our home community. And those are the things that we need if we are going to fight, if we are going to engage in nonviolent actions to stem the tide of harm, to stop it completely, and to protect ourselves and those that we love. So I have a very brief meditation here today. And actually, I kind of changed some of the words to suit how we do things, but it's pretty much Valerie's meditation from this teaching in this particular part of the course that I took. And so I'll ask you now, if you would, to gently close your eyes and go within. And the first thing I'll ask you to do is to reestablish your connection to your grounding cord deep in the earth, the one that you sent down at the beginning of our service today. And if you came in afterwards, go ahead and ground yourself to the earth now. Send down a strong taproot and feel how the earth is holding you and feel the safety of the Great Mother in whose arms you are held. And breathe deeply. And then bring your attention up to your third eye in the center of your forehead. Imagine it like an actual eye, just like your other two. Go ahead and open it up and look out through it into your imagination and find yourself in a beautiful garden at the height of spring. The sun is shining, the air is warming up, it's fresh and clean out here with a hint of flowers that are now beginning to bloom. It smells so good and fresh. Daffodils and hyacinths and tulips. And there is gentle bird song. Perhaps you are sitting with your back against a tree and you can feel its strength as you lean on it. It makes you feel safe. So take a moment now just to be here in this beauty, the beauty of this garden, for a moment. Breathe deeply and really take it in. Take this season in through your senses now. Good. Now I'm going to ask you to Allow yourself to consider what it is that you are carrying in your body in this moment. What are you carrying with you in your body? And it's probably many things or something that is complex. And so now I'll ask you to rest your attention specifically on the grief that you have been carrying in your body about what is happening in the world. Notice how that grief is showing up in your body. Is it in your throat, your heart, your belly? And just for a moment, stay with these sensations. The presence of our grief. And at the same time, I invite you to think about the causes of that grief the institutions, the individuals responsible for the suffering and the loss that you are grieving, the suffering and the loss of so many people and the, and the animals and the elements and the earth. And as you begin to think about these institutions and these individuals, letting those images flash before your eyes, I invite you to slowly, if it's available to you, 
let your fists start to clench. Notice just what it feels like to want to fight back. Now your impulse to fight is not something to be ashamed of or to suppress. It's something to honor. It means that you are alive and aware. It means that you have power and that you have agency. So honor that in yourself. And as you're staying with that energy, that impulse to fight against these institutions and individuals who are causing so much harm, I ask you now to summon your deep voice of wisdom. Summon that deep voice of wisdom within you and ask, what will you do with all of this energy? You have a role to play that no one else can play, so how will you show up? And you don't have to have all the answers now, but do ask the question, You simply need to allow yourself to feel the power that you have, the abilities that you have, the voice that you have, and invite that deep wisdom inside of you to guide you into what you need to be doing now and next. Ask that deep voice of wisdom, what do I do now and what do I do next? Then take a deep breath and gently bring yourself back here to our temple space together and gently open your eyes. We might not have come up with specific answers, but that is the way to imagine yourself at a peaceful place, to get in touch with what it is that you would want to fight against. Just saying it, my hands went like this. What would you want to fight against nonviolently, but holding on to it? And then ask that deep voice of wisdom, what do I do now? Or what's my very next step? Don't have to know the answers. I don't have to know the outcome. But what is before me to do now? And that makes it easier to stay in action. To stay loving revolutionarily. Now, revolutionary love is practiced in community. And that's the thing that I love so much about this. She says this over and over and over, Valerie Kaur does. Revolutionary love is practiced in community. There, and, and the thing to remember is that at this particular point in our history, there are more of us who want peace than there are those who want war. And there are more of us who are in dire situations now, and that engenders an opening, like a widening of our circles to include one another. There is a, a that's how we relate to each other. Um, like, oh, I, I might be doing okay in this area, but these poor people are not. Let me include them in my circle. How can I help them? It, it expands. And when we remember that there are more of us wanting peace and to help and to stop harm than those who want to perpetrate it, it also shores us up a little bit. Because I don't know about you, 
but I've had my depths of despair about what's been going on lately. And it, it's, uh, it's not fun and it's not powerful and it doesn't make me feel like I have any agency at all. So when I approach it this way, I feel more powerful and it keeps me in action. So helping us to think about others as ourselves expands that circle. No one has to do this work alone. No one fights alone. No one has to fight alone. We look to our communities already in the fight or those who have been engaged in this for a while and we ask them, what do we uh, need to do to help? How can we help? How can I help? They're already engaged in it. And look to the accomplices and see if you can become an accomplice. And Valerie says that, you know, the indigenous elders now are asking us to become accomplices, not just allies. Now, there's nothing wrong with being an ally, but an ally in, in many ways, or how we've come to see it now, is that we have similar ideologies and we sort of stand for the same things and believe in the same things, but an accomplice which is what the indigenous elders are asking us to become, conspire together. How does she say it? I wrote this down here. Accomplices conspire with one another to reorder the world. So beautiful. She also reminds us, Valerie does, that at any given time we might be needed to perform a role in revolutionary love and that role might change from time to time. There's never any one thing that we do. We need to be flexible because we might be needed in all kinds of different ways, but we never have to do it alone. We are in community and knowing that we are all in this together means that we can lean on one another and leaning on one another brings strength and courage and we allow ourselves to be vulnerable when we lean on someone else but doesn't it feel wonderful when someone comes to you when they're vulnerable and you're strong enough to let them lean on you so we can be that vulnerable person and we can be that strong person because all the roles are going to change from time to time but one way or another we will be leaning on each other and that's what beautiful community does. So I'm going to introduce Natalie Shapiro now, who's going to sing that beautiful song for us. And uh, take it away, Natalie.
beautiful song you did a great job for us thank you so much natalie shaparo that's our niece you know extra proud so my friends our job no matter what is to preserve life our best action is to preserve life and to keep harm from happening as best we can in every way we can and sometimes that means we must fight and if we must and when we do we must be strategic and not go it alone. This is the nature of opposition that is not purporting danger. We must be the loving opposition to the danger that is being wrought on others and ourselves. Loving opposition are the seeds that we must sow this spring. As we trust, we can lean on one another. And as the days grow longer, may those seeds sprout and flourish and flower for the highest good of all, blessed be.